Mike Cheer joins me to talk about ancient Norwegian yeast. I'm Luke, and this is the Beer Jack Podcast, Episode 8. If you love great beer from independent breweries, you'll find them at my website, beerjerk.co.nz, where we have a huge range and ship New Zealand wide. And if you're in Auckland, you can come see us at our warehouse shop and bar in Eden Terrace, the Fridge and Flagon. There's always something going on with Food Truck Fridays, Monday Run Club, Cheap Flagon Tuesdays, mini festivals, live music, monthly comedy nights, and more. We always have a ridiculously good selection on the taps that you can also take away in a flagon, as well as endless beers in the fridges. I sat in a park recently and shared a couple of beers with brewing consultant Mike Cheer. We chatted about his journey through Norway to learn about the new world of brewing options that have recently become available to brewers, thanks to the rediscovery of historic Norwegian farmhouse yeast strains. Mike tells me about magic yeast rings, unique ester profiles, and the fungi that seems to break all the rules. Welcome, Mike, to the Beer Jack podcast. Good to have you on. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> uh, well, we've had a pretty good brew day today, but we're, we're not gonna chat about that on the podcast at the moment. No. I'm gonna keep that secret for a little bit longer, but it's been wonderful to be brewing with malt colt once more. I was keen to have a bit of a chat with you about Norwegian yeast, but before we get onto that, I, I think that anyone that's listening that actually works in brewing or is a brewer will probably know you personally, Mike, but for anyone that's listening in that has never heard of Mike Cheer, uh, that isn't in the industry, maybe you could talk us through how you got into beer and, and your history in brewing. Sure, I'll give you the quick intro. <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically started out at Harrington's pretty much uh, after being a home brewer and uh, was there for three years um, and had a lot to do with the transition into the new site which uh, Lions actually just shut down unfortunately um, and now uh, then I went to uh, Steam up in Auckland which is now I moved up here and met all you lovely people and was there for a couple of years and then uh, was consulting in Samoa for about half a year um, and then came back to be the head brewer at Volstead down in Christchurch uh, where I used uh, Voss Kvik as my house strain exclusively and uh, now I'm working as a brewery consultant and most people will know me with, for my work with Small Gods and um, <laughs> sort of a bit more under the radar with helping out breweries with quality issues around the country. Sounds like a pretty interesting job. Can be. <laughs> um, so we could talk about so many things, but I just specifically wanted to chat about fake and yeast, and and it's something that all our listeners know that I'm especially interested in the history of beer as it relates to humankind and the human culture, and and I'm, I was so drawn to finding out more about the story of brewing and yeast in Norway. And it's really come to the fore in the last five years or so. And, uh, and yeah, you spent a bit of time in Norway adventuring, adventuring around and, and meeting brewers. So when did you first hear about what, what was happening with, with yeast in Norway? Uh, probably much like yourself and much like most people in the like, outside of Norway world. I heard of it through Lars' blog, um, through uh, Lars Garshall and his um, initial uh, blog post about um, the Voss uh, Kvike, uh, which was Sigmund's strain, and so reading that and kind of being uh, blown away by how different this 
tradition seemed and how different the yeast sounded. Like as a former home brewer, all my home brewer friends were being like, it ferments at 40 degrees. This is insane, you know, like we all know as home brewers, the first thing you do is you want to get your beer colder to ferment around 20. And this, this uh, strain broke all the rules. So um, that certainly piped my interest. And uh, I did a few uh, homebrew sized uh, batches with it. And it was really only uh, after starting at uh, Volstead and realizing that the way that the brewery was set up, um, using conventional yeast was gonna be to my detriment and to the beer's detriment um, because I couldn't harvest properly out of non-conical uh, fermenters. So I decided to use Voss uh, Kvike as my house and that started kind of a, a love affair with these uh, strains and a meeting of many different people who are also in love with these strains and um, um, well, just for people listening that maybe don't know about Quake or what it is, maybe you could just give a, a really, really quick overview as to, to what this stuff is and why it's exciting. Sure. Um, so, ironically, a lot of the stuff that we have here and use in commercial breweries is actually isolates of much more complicated um, symbiotic uh, yeast and bacterial colonies. But basically, uh, Quake or Quake or Quick or if you even want to call it uh, kvike, like some uh, people in Norway pronounce it different ways. So yep. depending on where you are in Norway, there'll be a different dialect and people will pronounce it differently. But in Norway, in these breweries, it tends to be multiple yeasts um, cohabiting with bacteria in uh, often captured in yeast rings or uh, yeast sticks, uh, which are dried usually um, and kept frozen pretty much um, and they can keep for generations and a general uh, a general point about them is that they tend to be uh, very hardy so they're mm. very difficult to kill um, they can withstand um, huge variations in temperature which most modern yeast um, don't and they tend to create um, unusual or non-standard uh, ester profiles um, which are significantly different to uh, brewer's yeast in the main in Europe. So it's a wonderful yeast that can kind of do everything. It sounds like a, it sounds magic. Yeah, well there's around, I mean, uh, Lars and his team have gone about trying to categorize each individual strain, but there's, there's over a hundred. Yeah. Um, and each different brew house will also start to diverge from the from the norm um, after a while as it takes on more um, maybe bacteria or yeast. So really what Western brewers talk about as Kvike is generally Voss, which I'm obviously most experienced with, Hornendal, both in single strain um, removed from the breweries uh, and taken by a yeast lab and repropagated. So that's not true Kvike fans, of which there is a growing number in New Zealand, uh, generally die-hard home brewers who have uh, the mixed strains which mm. are actually collected from the brewery itself and I am lucky enough to have some friends who who went around and got these strains and I have them frozen and my dad uses them for home brewing sometimes. Lucky um, guy. Yes but they're a bit more volatile and a bit less uh, what you would generally use in a commercial brewery I suppose. 
So you said that's a, a symbiotic culture. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's yeast and bacteria working together. Yeah. Yeah, usually. Um, sort of similar, I guess, to the scoby that you'd find on a um, kombucha. But um, traditionally, not all of them have bacteria in, in the strain, uh, but usually there'll be at least two yeast strains operating within the kvike itself. So when people talk about farmhouse harvested kvike versus lab kvike, what they're talking about is the actual stuff that the farmers are using versus one of the strains that's been extracted. So um, in my in my experience, really doesn't really matter what you decide to use. It's just that one is more easily available. But people that are into the uh, the harvested uh, farmhouse kvike would argue that that is the more real. That is the actual uh, multi-strain um, yeast that is being used in those farmhouse breweries. And what's the resultant beers taste like that have been made with various strains of kvike? Yeah, so a whole, whole bunch of different... Um, different various variances depending on which strain you use but the the, the two most uh, common would be Voss and Hornadale and I, I have most experience with Voss so I'll talk mainly about that um, so Voss's ester profile is almost non-existent in a way in that it doesn't produce standard banana esters or the usual fruity esters that you would find from a um, commercial beer yeast it creates mainly citrus orange peel um, kind of grapefruit zesty type aromas and these are most often confused with hop aromas. Um, mm, handy. When, yeah, exactly. Especially when used with a decent dry hop. Um, and it also means that if you mess up and create too much esters, like for example, if your <laughs> fermentation temperature is too warm or you under pitch, which is something which Kvike seems to love anyway, um, you won't get these off flavors, um, which you, instead you might get a little bit more citrus. So, um, in general, uh, it's a hell of a lot safer to have an ester pathway for the yeast that tends towards a, t a flavor that you're going to be getting from your hops anyway, as opposed to banana, which is going to muddle um, your hop flavors. Well, people have brewed for, uh, well, as long as there have been, has been civilization, and it's quite interesting to think about these I've only seen photographs of these objects of these yeast rings and yeast sticks which would have been the, the brewers in the olden days must have thought they were magic yeah well I mean in a way they are um, magic and they keep the strain alive um, over like I said generations sometimes could you describe what one looks like in case someone hasn't well if you're listening please google it <laughs> put Michael Pett a picture with his words yeah so it's a series of inter interconnected uh, sort of blocks which forms a, a ring a crisscrossed ring um, and then there's also a, a, a yeast stock like a stick which is basically a, a like a wooden spoon with holes drilled in it um, and sort of uh, markings on it to try and have the yeast to stick to it and um, but nowadays a lot of the, the farmhouse brewers in uh, Norway just just use uh, like glass jars to keep their Fight. they're not necessarily using the the sticks anymore but they're still using the same strains um, and these strains have been self-selected or, or rather they've been selected by man in the same way that dog breeds have been selected and the reason there's so much variance is that Norwegians don't travel much mm. around their own country so the, the difference between one side of one valley and the other side of the other valley you have two completely different strains of fike 
um, which have been selected by two different brewers or two different groups of brewers to target a similar taste. And so what they're doing is similar to dog breeding. Um, a dog breeder has a certain idea in their mind of how they want this dog to start looking like. Um, and they throw out the ones that don't match and they keep the ones and breed the ones that, um, that conform. Um, and so what you have around Norway is like 100 different pallets, which have selected 100 different yeasts. Um, to a hundred different ideas of what makes beer taste good. Um, and you don't find that in Europe because all of the yeast strains were pretty much homogenized like about a hundred years ago, or 50 years ago. Um, so even the farmhouse breweries making farmhouse saison in France and Belgium still use yeast that's from a lab generally. And you have to go to Norway or um, some places in Eastern Europe um, to to get that kind of farmhouse growing culture. I think Lith I've Lithuania. read Lithuania, right? Yeah. It's a really interesting comparison with breeding dogs and thinking about yeast as a, an organism, a kind of fungus. And it, yeah, in that similar way that, that dogs became man's best friend. And that's how they evolved and how yeast has evolved because mankind was looking after them by giving them nice sugary water and uh, we've, we've co-evolved together, I suppose, over the generations. Yeah, and different cultures have evolved with it in different ways. And, and obviously different cultures have different ideas of what tastes good. So it, it just so happens that the, what the ancient Norwegian brewers thought tasted good happens to align with our current craft beer trends. Um, Thick haze boys. Yeah, <laughs> so that's good, good luck there. And I heard about a, uh, a fake variety that brewers are using to make fake lagers mm. that results in a really crisp, clean beer. Yes, I've heard of it as well, but I haven't used it myself. So essentially you can use the strain to still ferment at 30 degrees and create essentially a similar profile to uh, a lagered um, 12 degrees Celsius German lager fermented uh, actual lager. And I'm not surprised about this in the slightest because I made a Pilsner with a New Zealand Pilsner with uh, Voss, and it got a bronze medal at the uh, New Zealand Beer Awards. Um, and I'm not surprised that you could find a, a strain that would be able to do that uh, very well. Uh, it's just a matter of just picking which one. So they're still quite um, untested in terms of their uh, ability to thrive in the modern brewing environment. I think people are still finding new uses for them and I can say for a fact that Voss has like amazing utility in the modern brew house um, despite the fact that it's you know tens of thousands of years old. It's, it's incredible and it's no wonder that modern craft brewers are so excited by their by their discovery of course Quake has not been discovered it's always been there and been known to the people using it but it, it seems to me almost as though um, I suppose the comparison might be that an orchestra suddenly discovers a cello <laughs> and it's this new instrument that you can use and, and do new things with. Mm. I guess I'd more uh, describe it as like those metal bands that end up playing with the symphony orchestra and like um, have that kind of cohesion uh, there. And, and yeah. It's, it's something that's entirely new, um, but you can make it work or it, it can be great but it's um, sometimes might have to be shoehorned in there. But no, um, certainly 
there's a lot to be found there. So you took a trip to Norway, uh, was that two years ago? Yeah. And where did you start off? Uh, so I started off in Oslo, as I landed in Oslo, and then uh, took a uh, trip down around the peninsula to Bergen, and then went inland to Voss, and spent uh, three days in Voss, and I was lucky enough to meet a Norwegian farmhouse brewer, uh, Tayer, uh, in Bergen, and he uh, gave me the contact details of another brewer who he used to brew with in Voss, um, of the name of Schur, and that was how I managed to get an invite to one of these people's houses because the Norwegians tend to be quite um, insular, I guess, mm. like a bit of wood. Um, and if I hadn't have had this um, lucky kind of meeting, I, I would have not known where to start really. Uh, and so while I was there, I got the contact details. Um, talked a lot with uh, Tired before I, I went there and talked to him about his family's brewing history and uh, how they used to malt their own barley. Um, so they would get uh, raw barley and malt it um, and do all of that themselves and dry it in the sun in Norway. So you can only really do that like three months out of the year. Um, so they, they'd malt the barley by like, putting sacks in a stream? Or how would, they, uh, how would they sprout it? No, so, so they would, yeah, so they would uh, wet it first, so I, I guess with a hose or um, a watering can, and then uh, allow it to germinate and then kiln it in the sun. Um, so, yeah, quite quite unusual for brewers to be doing that uh, <laughs> in, the, in the 20th century, um, definitely. And it looks like a shower's coming. Listeners, we're actually recording this in Basque Park in the middle of Auckland. It's uh, kind of a sunny winter's day, but there's a rain cloud coming over, so we'll... Oh, it's passing. <laughs> so how were they kilning their malt? With the sun. Yep. Yeah. So they layered out on the roofs <laughs> and, and, and let, let the, the weak Norwegian sun um, dry it out. So the... One of the reasons that uh, a lot of quake is uh, boiled for so long is that the uh, efficiency of the mash is so low because the grain itself is poorly modified and, and poorly malted because it's been malted by farmers who don't really know what they're doing. It's not a, well, they know what they're doing, but they're not a commercial maltings. Um, and so you would need to sparge, you want to you want to get as much as possible out of the malt and then boil it down um, to get the right amount of alcohol because you want the beer to be strong um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that they were malting the barley themselves so, so it wasn't very um, good barley really it was a good malt um, and just hearing that, that that he was doing that up until the 90s that he was um, they were malting their own barley up until the 90s was uh, quite a revelation to me um, to think that they had to do that because they couldn't get malt from anywhere else but they had plenty of barley because they had feed barley for the cows um, well I think sometimes when when we hear things like this and you know we can just pick up a phone and order some sacks of barley killed however we want it to be killed but actually if you do live in the far north of ru uh, rural Norway and you're far from anywhere and you think oh this this process must have taken them you know eight hours well, how long would it take to drive to the nearest town that has a maltings? 
it probably would have been longer, right? Mm. So it's not necessarily that inefficient if you compare it to the alternative. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Um, but what I loved is you're talking farmers who might grow the barley themselves and then malt the barley themselves and then brew the beer with that barley. So great. So, so that, that everything is there the whole way through. Um, and I just, I found that um, to be amazing. I think that's one process that's extremely rare to see these days. There aren't many brewers in the world at all that would grow their own barley and malt it. That's quite an extreme. Uh, unless you're very big, yeah. Yeah, unless you're huge or you, or someone like Schlenkerler, we've, we've been talking about Bamberg a lot recently, and of course they have kilns and they, they, they uh, kiln their own barley underground in caves. But it's, I suppose it's, quite an expensive process and to buy a, a sack of grain is pretty cheap mm. so he was saying that once they got to the late 90s the germans started to be bringing in the, the molten bags and they'd just buy a pilsner malt then because it was easier so but he said that he remembered the the periods of the maltings um so tyler introduced me to sure who lived in voss so i biked out to meet sure in um, some pretty cold conditions even though it was summer and was invited into his brewery which he had rebuilt and it was his grandfather's uh house um, which had been used to brew for approximately 200 years um, and he had just torn it down and rebuilt it because it was falling apart and his house just looked like a, a stone shed no usually well from what i could see most of them are wooden mm. um, but yeah, like a, a shed with a um, V-shaped roof and uh, usually a chimney for the um, steam and smoke from the fire to escape. Um, and they would hang, like in this case in Voss uh, Valley, it was a long boil um, kvike. So they would have these big 300 litre um, iron uh, kettles, which hung from three chains uh, going up to the roof and the open fire underneath it. Sounds incredible. And what sort of volume would they be making? Well, they would boil down that 300 litres to uh, 150 litres in a five-hour boil. Huh. Um, and the resultant beer went from 100% pale malt, like grist, so like a, looking like a lager, to looking like a, a Belgian double or like a brown ale, because it had been concentrated by, by half. Um, so was it quite viscous and full-bodied? Uh, you would think so. Uh, the smell uh, had like a lot of caramelization to it because mm. obviously the kettle's burning um, the wort over that long uh, period of boiling. But in fact, the, the taste because of the kvike was quite dry and refreshing. So you've got this amazingly uh, drinkable, very strong beer that smells like it should be quite malty and, and full and like chunky, but tastes like citrusy and crisp and very, very drinkable. So I drank a lot of his, because I was biking, I drank a lot of his 8% um, kvike and it was, yeah, I was amazed at, at the drinkability. Um, it finished very dry. And who was drinking his beers? Mainly, mainly him, from what I could understand. Yeah. He had, uh, he said he had another couple of brewers come through from the States, and I was like, oh, which, which brewery were they from? He was like, oh, Sam Adams. I've heard of them. Yeah. <laughs> so he'd had Sam Adams in two weeks before <laughs> I, me, uh, 
Mike Chair rolls in and I was just, he's like, oh yeah, they're nice people. I was like, oh cool. And um, in good company. Yes. Uh, so everyone, it seemed at that point, was wanting to get a piece of the pie of the Kvike. Um, so his, that style of Kvike is distinct to Voss. Um, and further north, you get more of the raw ale um, Kvike, which isn't boiled at all. Yeah. So you've got these two extremes of one area where it's boiled like twice as long. Um, or three times as long, four, four, five times as long as you would a normal beer, and then uh, up in the far north where it's not boiled at all, and it makes sense because in the second uh, brewery that I visited it was actually in a Viking village, and they brewed in wooden barrels. So instead of having a, a cast iron pot, because in the Viking age um, that would have been quite rare. They uh, added hot heated stones to uh, to barrels standing on their end to uh, reach mash temperature. Classic. And, to, and it's quite hard to get a boil if you're trying to keep heaping stones into a um, into a wooden barrel. So often these beers would just reach mash temperature, and then they would be uh, lauted. So the the liquid uh, liquor would be um, extracted from the grain, and then they'll be fermented like that. Um, and so the beer would never get any hotter than about 70 degrees. So, um, and yeah, beer, so beer, beer like that is called raw ale. And this is the beer that I tried in, um, in the uh, fjord where the Viking village was. Um, the name escapes me for the moment. But. And that's just the way it's always been done in that valley. Yeah, yeah. Um, the technique gets handed down and one thing I noticed uh, is people ask often what the temperature, why the temperature of the um, the yeast is so high, and I kind of uh, come back with, well, what's your body temperature like when you put your finger in a spa, spa pool at 37, 38 degrees? You know that it's the same temperature as your hand, right? So when these people are, I, I would surmise, um, cooling the wort in a um, river or like letting it cool out in the ambient temperature they're touching it to figure out where it's whether it's cool enough to add the quake yeah the yeast and when it gets down to 37 38 that's when it's their body temperature that's when they add the add the yeast the blood temperature and over the generations of the yeast the the ones that can survive it exactly they the adapt body temperature yeah survive exactly um so just like great danes Has anyone made a raw yeast, uh, a raw ale in New Zealand? I have. <laughs> How I did that go? I've made several. Went really well. And, and what does a raw ale taste like? Um, so they can taste of all, all different types of things. Mainly the malt is going to taste more um, kind of grainy, for lack of a better word, um, because you so like cereally. Yes. Yep. Yeah, much more cereally. Mm. Um, and uh, that that's probably the, the main difference, I guess. The other difference is that you haven't uh, given it a boil to get rid of proteins and you don't have your hot break and your cold break so you're going to have a lot more haze which mm. works well for hazies yeah so you can do raw ale hazies fairly easily um, and I've done a few of those um, but basically it has a more pronounced cereal raw grain taste because you literally haven't cooked that that grain from what it tastes like in the bag um, if you've ever eaten raw grain, raw malt, um, 
that's more what it tastes like in the final beer because it hasn't been boiled for an hour or five. <laughs> and where else did you visit on your trip? Um, so we went up uh, from Voss to uh, a few other uh, little beer places, actually, a few other breweries. I went to see Aga Brewery, um, which is in From, uh, Flom, sorry, um, and met the American head brewer there, who was lovely, and he gave us a very nice mead. Um, but they don't do traditional Viking styles. They seem kind of aloof to the whole idea. Um, other than that, uh, I tried many good uh, farmhouse style beers when I went back to Oslo, but I only saw those three brewers when I was in Norway. So that would be the extent of my actual uh, contact with with them. Although I went to Vosbrygdi, which is like a um, modern craft brewery, and they also had a, um, a traditional style uh, brewing set up for their one uh, Vosaol, which is just Vos beer, um, which is done in the traditional style with the five hour boil. But that was like a mixture of the two traditions. Like they weren't really a farmhouse brewery because they were a modern commercial brewery, but they did try and do the original style traditionally on top of their usual IPAs and Pilsners and stuff like that. So I visited them as well, which was a um, cool opportunity, but I don't, don't really consider them part of the farmhouse tour. It seems like there was quite a bit of fuss about uh, the possibilities with these, these yeast varieties two or three years ago, or all over the world with craft breweries. And I feel like it's settled down a bit now. I was just trying to think of New Zealand breweries that are regularly working with Kvike or, or even experimenting with them these days. And I, I don't know if there are many. Yeah, I mean, Volstead still uses them as far as I'm aware. Um, mm. And uh, I know that uh, Emerson's in Dunedin actually have been working with a, a few of those strains um, and looking to maybe do something with them. But I think the thing is, it's like if you are a modern brewery using it to increase your production or to uh, reduce your quality issues, then you're not necessarily going to make a song, song and dance about it, mm. especially if you're making lagers with it yeah. or, or whatever Kvike strain you're using. It's like people want, like for me as a brewer, I want the result at the end to be as bulletproof and as solid as possible. And if this yeast will help me do it, then I'll use it, even though it's not traditionally, traditionally like meant to be in a stout or whatever. Um, but a lot of punters, I feel, might feel uh, differently about that. Might be like, oh, you should say that it's used using a farmhouse strain of you know, Norwegian yeast. And for me, I'm like, does it really matter if the beer tastes as the brewery intended um, at the end of the day? With The main thing I like about these strains generally is they remove the risk of diacetyl because they ferment so warm. Um, and if diacetyl could be removed as a problem in New Zealand brewing, then I'll be very happy because it's a big problem. That'll be a happy day. It will be a very happy day, but it will never happen because, um, you know, if, and all it would take is for these people. <laughs> Everyone's Everyone. agree with Quake. Exactly. <laughs> um, but no, people need to stick to their traditions, so, and I respect that. I really enjoyed uh, seeing traditions which have obviously evolved from their kind of Viking age 
uh, era, but still much more traditional than anything we or uh, Europe has, um, to be fair. And just mm. seeing that link to, I guess, like man's ancient past and a glimpse on how it might have been to brew 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 years ago or something close to it uh, was quite humbling, really. And to see these like organisms and how unique they are and how they're adapted to such harsh climates as well was just kind of like a huge respect for both the, the generations of people that have shepherded these yeasts and also for the organisms themselves, the fungi, um, the living kind of breath which has remained unbroken all the way through that that time, you know, slowly evolving with man and and with the beer itself. Yeah. And it's a delicate balance. It could have it could have been lost at any time with the popularity of lagers and of different beer styles and of people moving away from agricultural lives and moving to the cities it it wouldn't take much at all for for the these tenuous little strains of yeast you're underestimating how stubborn and insular norwegians are <laughs> <laughs> at least the ones that i met um yeah um no there's some of these people like some of these valleys only had roads um built to them in the 1960s you know voss was pretty much isolated um until the 1960s. So you're talking like, imagine like the most isolated place in New Zealand, you know, take that and like increase the distance and the isolation by a factor of 10 and, and that's kind of where you're at. And make it a lot colder. Yes. Um, so, so yeah, for me, like seeing it, I'm like, yeah, I can totally believe that these people have been um, <laughs> continuing this. And, and like I said, stubborn, like stick to it kind of culture, like, why change? Uh, yeah, totally. And and if that hadn't been there, then we might not have what we have now, which is beautiful. So, well, that's quite interesting. So, I, I wonder if, well, surely we have lost so many strains and varieties of yeast all over the entire world, where beer has been brewed for for centuries and centuries, and just because of the the never-ending march to modernity and people moving to the cities so yeah I wonder what yeasts what people were doing with yeast in rural Italy and in South America and in China it's like what you what we were saying about the, the malt earlier is it's like as soon as you get an easier option you're liable to take it it's like oh suddenly I can just buy the malt as opposed to having to malt it myself um, and that's where these yeasts I guess ended up being outmoded by simplicity and ease of use. Um, likely, often a lot of them were only 100 years ago or 50 years ago, similar to how uh, baking, bread mass production became um, a, a big thing. My grandfather used to have a, a bakery mm. in Danny Burke, and now you don't find bakeries supplying towns anymore. You, you buy your bread from the supermarket. Yeah. If you go to the bakery, it's for like pies or something. Um, but similar thing with yeast strains is that if you can buy an easy yeast strain that's definitely making your beer um, consistently then brewers will generally tend towards that and I'm guilty of that as well 
In fact, I'm probably more guilty of that than most people. So um, I can see how easily these strains and these traditions have been snuffed out in the rest of most of the rest of Western Europe. Um, I guess Gers is the kind of shining example of something that's a, quite different and quite unique um, that you, that's using uh, out out there yeast strains um, and, and bacteria as well. Uh, and there's there are others, but um, I think the Norwegian farmhouse beers and the Lithuanian farmhouse beers definitely stand alone in terms of their varietal varietal difference and uh, uniqueness. Do you have plans to visit Lithuania? Ha. COVID lives. Um, I have a friend who has a Lithuanian partner, um, and I can live vicariously through him. So I think I'll, I'll just do that. To be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Surely you want to drink some of the stuff. I would. I would love to. Um, you can get the strains for home, home. A few homebrewer friends of mine have, have brewed Lithuanian farmhouse ales, so I'm keen to try them. Um, but no, I don't. I don't see the need to visit Lithuania as much as I did to visit Norway. Um, I'm not sure if that's me being um, blast, but um, no, that's just just how I feel. But it's a long way from here. It's it's hard work. It is. <laughs> it is. Especially now. Well, thanks so much, Mike. It's been lovely sitting in this park with you, chatting about yeast. The sun is shining once again. It's pretty glorious, and uh, I look forward to having you back on the podcast to talk about various other beer stuff. No worries. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Remember, the Beer Jack podcast is released every Thursday with me and Matt chatting about beer and news. And in between those episodes, we'll have sporadic interviews with different people from around the beer industry. You can join our Facebook community at NZ Beer Jerks um, on Facebook. That's a, a great group and community of people chatting about beers. And if you want to buy any beer, go to beerjerk.co.nz. <laughs> Cheers.